Hi, I'm Bruce News Editor Matt Kirkegaard, and thanks to your malt mates at Cry Malt, this is Beer is a Conversation. Beer is a Conversation is our weekly sit-down with some of the people who make the beer industry the interesting and dynamic thing that it is. And through these conversations, we dig a little deeper into the stories behind the business of beer and brewing. Over the last few months, we have jumped into the Wayback Machine and talked about the early days of what we now call craft beer. This has been more through accident than design, but this week we have another one for you. About six months ago, I was having a chat with Chuck Hahn, and the conversation came around to the changing beer palettes that we're seeing amongst consumers these days. And Chuck happened to mention that his original intention for Hahn Premium Lager was to brew and market a Pilsner. He said that his early testing told him that the beer that he proposed to brew was a little too challenging for the 1998 beer palette that he was targeting, not to mention that they didn't know what a Pilsner was. I told Chuck, who for some reason I still feel uncomfortable not calling Mr. Hahn, uh, but I told Chuck that I wished that I could try the original beer and floated the idea that if he was ever in Brisbane, we could borrow a homebrew kit and do a batch with him. Chuck seemed to like the idea, But like a lot of ideas, I thought it was destined to hang in space unfulfilled. But Chuck, being who he is, called me a few weeks ago and asked me if I was free last Thursday to brew a batch of beer at the Charming Squire in Brisbane. It turns out that despite their brewing schedule and their tanks being stretched tight in the lead up to summer, Chuck had pulled rank and made time for his brew. Like all media brews, my involvement was to pose for a photo while the brewers do all of the hard work but I got to see the beer being made. This conversation took place while it was mashing in. I tried to keep the discussion to the days of the late 80s and the original Hahn brewing. But again, Chuck being who he is, the conversation bounced all over the place. It's a fascinating conversation about a time before hops were as we know them today. And I really hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I did. Chuck Hahn, welcome to Beer is a Conversation. Thank you. We have spoken uh, on, on the podcast before, and I, I think this could be one of the uh, great Brews News five-hour chats if, uh, <laughs> if, if we talked about your uh, long career. But we have just uh, been involved in mashing in a, a, a very, very special beer. Um, and we've gone back to look at the original Hahn Premium Lager uh, from 1988. So I really wanted to just have a little bit of a chat um, Wow, what, what's that? That's uh, 30 years later? 30, yeah, so 30 years later. 30, over 30 years, yeah. Over, over 30 years. Uh, just the change um, that, that, that's occurred because when we first spoke, the beer that made it into the bottle as the original Hahn Premium Lager back in 1988 wasn't even the beer that you originally conceived. So um, w- without giving too much away, I'll, I'll, I'll let you talk about it, but we won't... I think on a previous podcast we've talked about how you came into brewing, working at Coors and came to Australia, but just tell us the, the immediate background to the origins of the Hahn Brewery back in 1988. Well, I think, I mean, before I had, uh, I, I'd been working with Toos and I was over in New Zealand with Steinlager, came back, but while I was in New Zealand, I uh, was able to get three Australian partners and one venture capitalist to go in with us to actually start up the Hahn Brewery. We figured there was a niche for a... Uh, international quality lager, brewed locally so it was fresh. And we, we felt that uh, the, the current level of beers, even in general, they were, they were very good quality, good drinking beers we had in Australia back then. There was nothing special about it. 
we figured if we could have something, have some special hop characteristics, but more of a European style, we figured uh, that was an niche that we could fill at that time. Now, let, let's just paint a bit of a picture about the beer climate in those days. So 1988, I was just getting my uh, drinking licence uh, back then. Um, you know, I'd just turned 18. I, and- I just turned 42. <laughs> So, and we, which gives me uh, sort of great hope that uh, I've, I've still got a bit of a career um, to, to go. Um, but back in those days, I remember that in 88, Forex Gold hadn't even been brewed for the first time. So okay. that was 92. Um, so beer was around about 4.95%. It was... Um, I, I think that Forex um, that I grew up on was still using cluster hops in those days. Yeah. Um, yeah. So they were still using uh, pellets. But there was quite a bit of adjunct sugars in there. They were going for light, clean, and beer by the volume. How would you describe the, the, yeah, the Australian? I would say uh, trending towards you know very very drinkable lagers. Uh, ales were not big at the time. You had a few black ales around, but everything was was pretty uh, easy drinking lagers. Again, pushing you know uh, four point eight to five percent alcohol level, probably twenty uh, around twenty twenty five bitterness units. Uh, very very quaffable beer, but there weren't there weren't many beers around. I mean, back then, you know, you you walk into a pub and there were maybe five or six beers on tap, and that was about it. So you really didn't have a lot of choice. But I think around about those days, uh, it was before even the Carlton Cold, um, which would have been very early nineties. So it was the very traditional mainstream beers. Um, mm. Queensland, you drank Forex. Um, in New South Wales, it was two years old or two years new. Or, or Tooth. Or Tooth. Uh, well, yeah, Tooth. I mean, uh, of course, Tooth you know, went, out, went out of business uh, after the takeover uh, by, by CUB. But they still were Reshes, you know. So it was, it was Reshes and Tooths and Tooies. And New South, uh, so Victoria, people still drank Fosters in those days. Yeah, <laughs> Fosters, very popular. And also you, had, you still had, you had Carlton Draft. And I think VB got started up a little bit after that. And But we figured there was a niche for something with... Um, uh, more of a European hop character. And the initial, I mean, I'd spent the previous three years, three and a half years in New Zealand working with some of the hop, hop breeders, and I knew we had some good hop varieties. Um, I wanted to use uh, local hops, but at that time, there weren't any good Australian local hops. And uh, again, set the scene for us. These days, people would be surprised to hear that New Zealand hops and that there were no good Australian hops. We're in a post-Galaxy world, you know, 10, 12 years after Galaxy was commercially launched. Australian hops are vastly different than they were then, and New Zealand hops are very much the same. So maybe describe what the hop industry was in those days. Well, I mean, uh, the hop industry in Australia at the time was uh, made for trying to get higher bitterness in the hops without regard to aroma, because a lot of the hops out of Tasmania and out of Victoria were going into hop extract, which uh, was using in Fosters and in some of the other beers, and they they weren't to regu- they weren't going regular pellets or anything like that. So they just wanted bitterness, and that's why what we did is we selected some hops out of New Zealand. Uh, they were uh, super alpha hops. I think it's called Doctor Rudy now. The hops, and been, but it had a uh, a high alpha acid, fairly high alpha acid, but just a really nice aroma. And even, I mean, even though I know with Steinlager we're using Green Bullet hops at the time, but the first beer that we made, we actually brewed it uh, in a small brewery uh, in New Zealand, bought a pallet of it across, tested it, this was late 1987, at the Rose Hill Racecourse. 
And so I was went around and talked to people about this this new beer, this this Hahn Premium Lager, and uh, then based on that, we we then developed the final recipe. So what was the feedback? So so to describe. Uh, what you were trying for, what what you were shooting for with that first batch that you well, brought across. Well, the first batch we were going for it was 100% malt, uh, 4.5 alcohol, probably around 25 uh, bitterness units, and uh, it, it was uh, late hopped uh, with a super alpha hop, so it had just a, a real interesting fresh fresh hop aroma to it, but nothing like the dry hopping that you get now, and it was very well received. And so that's what we what we launched it with. And in fact, I put the first brew through in January 1988. We went to the marketplace in March, opened, officially opened the brewery in March of 88. But before that, you'd actually tried for a, a slightly more hopped beer, um, I understand, and that you even before you did the that first pallet, um, my understanding is that you'd uh, scaled back the, the, the hop character even a little bit for, for that trial batch. Yeah, we scaled it back just a little bit from that, and uh, but we still, we wanted, we sort of wanted European notes on it, because mm-hmm. we wanted uh, you know, the, the whole positioning was a locally brewed uh, international quality lager. In fact, I really wanted to call it a Pilsner at the time, but back then no one knew what a Pilsner was, and so we didn't have a lot of money to go out and educate people about <laughs> Pilsners, so we say, well, we'll just call it a Han Premium Lager. And what was the feedback you got for the early batches in terms of, because I believe that people found your, your, your first batches a little bit too challenging, which is why you dialed yeah, it back a little bit? Yeah, we had dialed it back a little bit. And then uh, as, we, as, we, as we moved into the, the 90s, we then did some uh, extensive uh, tasting and discovered. And, and then at, at that time, I mean, this is 92, 93, uh, there were difficult times for business at that time. I mean, we... Uh, we were paying a 17% interest on our overdraft and on loans. Uh, and the government wasn't helping small breweries at all. Uh, we got up to about uh, 2.5 million liters and out of the small brewery in Camperdown. In fact, part of that was what we called uh, 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 Hans Sydney Bitter at the time, which was brewed with uh, 80% malt, 20% sugar, and just very simply hopped. And that, that beer took off. It was sort of a... Uh, a, a poor man's grange, if you will. You know, so we're selling it for a little bit cheaper, and we got some volume out of that. But we're just barely breaking even, and that's when we had trouble trouble with the banks. Well, we, we might move forward, but but, but, but it, they, what happens then? We we became uh, part of Tui's, hmm. and then we were able to look closely at our recipes. Then, and we discovered that our beer, that initially 100% malt, four and a half percent alcohol, richly hopped was too challenging for the average palate at the time. That's what we, we laugh at now, you know, because everyone is much, much higher bitterness levels and much richer beers now. There was so much about the culture of drinking in those days when if one beer was good, ten was better, and beers were basically fine-tuned to appeal to people that wanted to drink in volume. Yes, yeah. Very, very uh, drinkable beers. I mean, you look at uh, the launch in 94... We had the Han Ice, which was a very drinkable beer. You had the uh, the, the Carlton Cold, mm. again a very drinkable, uh, almost thin beer. Uh, people were just looking for drinking. I mean, they were looking for uh, probably refreshment, but probably more relaxation, if you will, <laughs> <laughs> or uh, effect. Uh, effect. Um, yeah, looking more of effect. And but what, what we want, we were trying to add a little bit more culture to that. But what we decided, we, we actually thinned the beer down a little bit. We actually moved the alcohol level to 5%. And that's when we changed to 
late hopping with uh, German uh, Hirschberger hops and early hopping uh, with Super Pride. Pride so, so, so this hops. was post-acquisition uh, by what yes, is now Lime? Yes, this was 95-96. Yep. We looked at that. And that's when we launched it in a green, the, the shaped green glass bottle, which everyone just loved, you know. And it was one that we called it ergonomically designed because you could hold on to it. It wouldn't slip out of your hand. It had that hourglass shape. Yeah, yeah. And, and so your hand fit into it well. So it wasn't like a uh, a crown lager that slipped out of your hand after you had a few. But this it was the, the inverse wedge, of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And so, uh, and, and we we explained that that as you poured it out of the bottle, it went gurgle gurgle, and it released the hop volatiles because of the shape. Because of the shape, yeah. And so we hadn't even thought about the ergonomic drinking design on it at the time, and and that really kicked off. And that beer went out. It, we took some international awards. Uh, I think ninety eight. We got to like 8 million liters. I mean, it was a, a big brand for us, mm. huge brand for us. Well, it, it, there's so much. I actually wanted to, to go back to the founding of uh, Hahn, but while we're talking about that, it, it's interesting because the, the original Hahn, when you owned the brewery, um, was brown glass. Um, it, yes. the, the move to green glass was obviously very popular with consumers. Um, can you ever fully divorce that sort of marketing um, from the business of making beer do you think well i think yeah you've got to have you've got to combine good marketing and good brewing and you've got to have the right positioning for the brand and i think we hit on it with the with the green glass i mean being a brewer i'd prefer to put it in brown glass of course so you don't have any light problems at all I'm getting sunstruck what is it but, about green glass that appeals to consumers do you think well, i think the real appeal in green glass is that the the the, the premium beers in the world like heineken and becks and they call them premium, but, but I mean, premium imports, I should say, have always been in, uh, in green glass. Mm. And so I think we were just kind of following the international trend on that. Why? And that surprises me because the European brewers are always held up as being craftsmen and was just part of their positioning. Yeah. And yet, again, green glass isn't the best thing for hopped beer. Um, and yet they've, they, they made the move in, in, into green glass. Was it marketing on their part or... It's just marketing, yeah. It's just marketing. They even go steps further than that, you know, with the, the success, tremendous success of Corona in clear glass. Which, again, was uh, brought in by Phil Sexton in 88, I think. Well, what was it with the um, Corona, really? Yeah. yeah. yeah I, did, I didn't realize that. Yeah. Uh, we had a recent chat with Phil, and uh, oh, really? okay. it was part of the, the Matilda Bay. Well, it might not have been a little bit earlier than 88, but it was certainly uh, Phil oh. who was the first to bring in. Um, oh, okay, it might have been after CUB took over. Matilda Bay, maybe. It was a little bit earlier. So, yeah, okay? so, so they were in negotiations at that stage, and I think that might have been what brought them into uh, contact with CUB. Okay, no, well, that's, that's amazing stuff. And then, I mean, it, sometimes the sunstruckness was, was so much uh, with the corona, that's why everyone had to put a lime in it <laughs> or lemon in it, you know, to, to mask that flavor a little bit. But we, we never we never really wanted to do anything like that, you know. And but so I, I kind of fought the green glass a little bit. But uh, marketing said this is the way to go, and it, it certainly was. Yeah. Yeah. Did you step back to January nineteen eighty eight um, for some of our younger listeners, which is a lot of them. Uh, they won't remember the Australian bicentenary, but January nineteen eighty eight was a very uh, I'll say special time in okay. in, in, in Australia. There was a, a real sense of buzz and pride and excitement about the uh, marking the centenary. Was that did yep. that factor into your 
consideration at all when you wanted to launch an Australian premium lager? Uh, no, it really wasn't. I mean, that was um, you know, the, the bicentennial, the 200 years. Um, I guess that would probably have been a, a better time to, to launch something like James Squire because James Squire arrived here in 1788. You know, it could be the bicentennial of, of James Squire's arrival in Australia. But no, we, we didn't really consider that at the time. But um, the, the beer took off. Um, I mean, on draft, everyone wanted on draft in Sydney. Uh, we gradually expanded across the country using some distributors. And uh, oh, it, was, it was going fairly well, you know, for us, uh, for a new brand of beer. But back then, there were 35 breweries in Australia. I mean, just last year, we had 52 breweries start up. <laughs> we got, what, over 600 now. And, and so the, uh, I mean, the main breweries, we had Matilda Bay in our, in our cells. We had a couple smaller ones down in, around Adelaide. Uh, uh, we, we had uh, a Bernie Power just started up that same time, Powers Brewing. Yeah, no, it was, it was, it was a start of the, the, the craft rebellion, if you will. What drove, because it was around that time that we did see a, a very faint flowering, um, faint compared to what we see today, but we did see, you know, Bernie had a particular set of reasons for why he started Powers. It was very much in reaction to Bond taking over Forex, and he came at it yes. from a publican's point of view. But just down the road from where we are at the, the Charming Squire in South Brisbane, there was a little brew pub called Kelly's. Um, there was Matilda oh, right, Kelly's, Bay, yeah, Kelly's, uh, yeah. What, those what, were copper kettles too, weren't they? They were... They were copper uh, kettles. I'll admit to you, Chuck, that I, when the, the the few times I visited <laughs> Kelly's, I wasn't taking a great interest in in, in the the quality of the beer. It was the yes. experience of uh, drinking it. At, at, I remember at, seeing pictures of those those copper kettles, and then when that brewery finally closed down, they then surfaced later in uh, the Steel River Brewing Company in Newcastle. There you go. Which okay. then then went out of business in. Oh, 95 or so after that, you know. So it's amazing. It, it, it's amazing how these things... But what the, the, the late 80s was the time of the yuppie. We, were, we, we had a, a, a very strong financial run, you know, globally um, before 92. So yeah. how much... How much was the confidence of the times around the centenary, that wealth that people were feeling uh, with the sort of stock-driven uh, yuppie craze, how much did that play into that flowering of craft brewing back then? What Was it about the beer or was it about the premiumness or about the... the, the, the I, think, I think it was about uh, a little bit about the premiumness, but uh, a little bit about uh, paying for flavour and actually tasting beer rather than just throwing it back for effect. Mm -hmm. And that, that has grown even more now. We've seen that in the last 30 years, how, how people really are, are talking about the beer. They're, they're, they're seeing interesting flavors come up. They're having beer and food together. I mean, it's great. We've actually, beer used to be the culture. Now we have a beer culture. Okay, you're a little bit more bullish. I think we're approaching. Approaching. We're, yeah, we're, we're approaching. I think we've still got a little bit. <laughs> oh, we still got a ways to go. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but uh, it's funny that you say there was about the, the, the beer flavor. Um, and that brings us back to what we're really here talking about today is that a lot of those craft breweries, you know, Bernie Powers just made a different variation of Forex. Um, you know, it was that, that yep, exactly. Eastern yep. Lager. Um, the, the beer you made was just that step up from those, you know, you want a little bit more hop character. Um, and a lot of the breweries were brewing, you know, an English brown ale. They might have been doing a wheat beer like Redback. Yep, yep, they were yep. doing a, a German or European lager. 
we weren't seeing the very hop driven the, the the hop styles really hadn't been conceived of except in very no. small pockets around the world that's very true i mean they're mostly malt driven i mean you had the matilda bay dog bolter which mm-hmm. a real rich uh, uh kind of an amber ale-ish type thing and uh, barragrang bock um, yeah oh yeah Barragrang uh, J- uh, jeffrey shar yeah uh I I remember meeting Jeffrey when I was I was still I was still working for Reshus and Toos and, <laughs> and he was having some some infection problems and so he gave me a call you know and I I, I told him some some new cleaning procedures <laughs> this one I was running a big brewery <laughs> and he was down in Picton but uh, no that was yeah everyone was going some some richer richer flavored beers what was it um, what did you learn from that time running your own brewery. Um, from from the 1980s, and you, you alluded to the fact that in 92, interest rates were 17%. Uh, it, it was a, it became a very challenging time to, to operate a brewery. But during the four years that you were running it um, as an independent brewery, what we would these days call an independent brewery, what did you learn? What were the the, the lessons that have stuck with you uh, for the rest of your career? Well, I think what we what we learned was in order to develop a beer brand, you had to be connected to the community. You had to be out there talking to the people about your beers and this was very very important and because in order to separate yourself from from the larger breweries uh who are just making beer uh just just as a a drinkable refreshing product you had to be out there adding more character to your beer by adding some personality to it and we, we carried that same philosophy through when 10 years later we started up james squire i mean we were out there all the time myself and the brewers talking to the people about about our beers and, and at that time of course we with our with our amber ale was a distinctive color mm. and a distinctive head on it mm. but uh, i know they uh, so the, the whole thing has developed and i think the uh, i mean it's interesting the brew we're doing now is is sort of uh, kind of a combination of the original recipe and the slightly modified recipe that we have and that's going to be interesting to get some people together to taste it. In fact, some people that, that probably drank some of the original Han Premium, uh, 88 and, uh, and, and 96, 97, 98, and, and see what they think about the beer. This episode of Beer is a Conversation is brought to you by Unleashed Software. Unleashed is more than inventory management software for brewers. It's a system that runs your whole business operations and gives you an unfair advantage. With Unleashed, you can create custom recipes, effortlessly track your cereal and batch numbers, and understand your stock levels at all times at every location. Learn how Unleashed can help you run and grow your brewery at unleashedsoftware.com forward slash brew. One of the things that in, in a very early chat when I was just getting started uh, writing about beer and, and, and I spoke to you and you, you, you talked about the importance of, you know, it, it's a unit cost game, I think was one of the, 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 the yes, phrases yeah. that you use that um, you can make the best beer in the world, but at the end of the day, you need to sell units as well. Yes. Um, talk, talk to me about that idea. Well, I, I think the, uh, particularly at that time, you had to have a beer that was, um, was sellable, uh, you could make some money on and... Because at that time, we, we couldn't have a retail manufacturing license. We had to have a wholesale brewer's license. So we couldn't sell beer directly out of the brewery. Now, that law was changed a number of years ago, and that's allowed a lot of these small breweries to get going because they're able to sell directly out of the brewery. They're able to then have a, 
a group. Uh, they can really connect with the community. Their brewers can be finishing up work and having beers with the locals type thing. And I think that, that really has spearheaded the growth of the small breweries. But back then, you had to make a beer that you could put in a keg, you could sell it, uh, you, you had to distribute it, you had to package it properly so it wasn't going to go off in the bottle a month later. You know, and, and so you really had to have stringent quality control procedures in order to get the beer out there, sell it wholesale, and still try to make money. Mm-hmm. And that was a real challenge, I think. And the, the government was giving no subsidies at all. In fact, I remember every day after I produced beer, I had to go down to Customs House in Sydney and pay them cold, hard cash excise. <laughs> and I wasn't going to get paid for 30 days unless if I got paid you know, for the beer. Yeah. So how, how long did the Hahn Brewery run uh, under your control? Well, it, it ran up to uh, uh, early 93. And then uh, Lion bought us, and I became chief brewer for the whole group. And I, I still kind of kept my hand in the, in the Han business to a certain extent. And, uh, but uh, that, that, was, that was interesting times because right after that, in 94, we, developed, we had the first uh, ice beer that was developed. We actually put in special tanks to, to ice the beer, freeze out some of the polyphenols, some of the harsher components. So it was a real smooth, easy-drinking beer. And then I think Carlton followed very quickly with Carlton Cold, or it was all about the same time. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and then when he came out, we had Han, Ice, uh, Han Light. Uh, and then uh, a few years after that, we came out with Han Super Dry, which has been a big brand for us now. Uh, and it's almost the brand that the Han name is known for these oh, days. Yeah, I mean, we're, we're doing uh, millions of liters uh, a year of that. And it's, uh, it's a very good brand for us. And in fact, it's interesting, it's, it's always been in brown glass. And, a couple years ago, we changed it to two years ago. We changed it to green glass. Mm. Again, uh, a marketing decision. <laughs> and how did that go? Uh, it's gone well. You know, it's uh, and then the the biggest thing I think under the Han brand though has been the Han Ultra Crisp, which is the gluten free, the gluten free brewed 100% rice. Now that's been, that was a real challenge for us to to brew a beer with 100% rice, no malted barley, and uh, to to give it some beer flavor and character. Uh, without the the higher protein levels and the glutens uh, present in in barley, it, it was real tricky. But uh, the the brand is going going like crazy. And was any of that technology used? Because I, I know that Lion has just released Quincy, which was their um, uh, no. alcoholic seltzer. So yeah, yeah. and that which is a rice based ferment as well. Yeah, yeah. I mean that that's 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 an interesting drink. You know, I mean the. And that's about uh, kind of interesting flavor with a little, little bit of alcohol in it. And uh, that, that seems to be going fairly well. But, and I think that, uh, I mean, people still are drinking for sociability. Uh, there's a, a rise in the lower alcohol ones, the more sessional beers, and even uh, alcohol-free beers. I mean, I think Heineken Zero has, has taken off. Carlton Zero is, is doing fairly well. When you say taken off, is it, are we still at the trial phase where you know, if, if 5% of drinkers try one beer, it looks like the, the alcohol-free beers have had a fantastic year. Yeah. I, I guess it'll be a, a, you know, 12, 18 months till we really get an idea of whether there's been some stickability yeah. to it. I, I think there will be. I think it'll take a while. For, I think because 
the, the, the you have the social side of beer drinking. People have a couple of beers to get a little bit relaxed. They're most sociable. But that's but, the alcohol that does that. Yes, but you don't need to have high alcohol on that. I mean, you can you can do that with a couple of percent alcohol. Still get that relaxed feeling. And, and that's where the mid strengths, like the the, the, oh, the Han Premium Light or the the, the, the oh, Forex Gold, yeah, yeah. you get that little bit of relaxation yeah, yeah. Um, and 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 the flavor. Whereas with alcohol free beer, you get the flavor and calories but none of the relaxation uh, exactly i mean and you don't get as high calories of course because i mean alcohol mm. is your principal contributor to mm. calories it's got what 6.9 calories per gram where sugar mm. and carbohydrates is only four mm. and fats nine and so there's no such thing as beer bellies it's all the fatty foods you have with <laughs> beer because it goes so well but i think sociability is such a big thing with beer now and i think we talked to the whole scene has changed a bit i mean we used to talk about just the two two r's of beer drinking uh relaxation and refreshment mm. now we have the five r's which are we got relaxation refreshment relevance reverence and respect <laughs> and uh, it, it, that all comes together i think now talk to us a little bit about it. so we, we've touched on the fact that we've just brewed uh, a, an approximation of that original han premium lager or pilsner yeah. um, which people are much more aware of what a pilsner is yes, these days that's, that's true. Yep. Um, so tell us what, what we're um, what we've been mashing in this morning okay well we, we mashed in uh it was a uh, for, for the home brewers out there it was 90 percent uh, pale malt 10 percent munich malt just to give it a little bit of a little bit of body we had a little bit of uh calcium chloride as as uh, salts just to raise the the hardness level up a little bit and uh so we mashed in uh Probably typical uh, average uh, mashing temperature for home brewers of uh, uh, 68 degrees, held for about an hour. Uh, we're running off now, and uh, and we'll, we'll gather that up, and then we're gonna we're gonna hop it when we start boiling. We're gonna use uh, uh, super alpha hops uh, called Dr. Rudy hops now out of New Zealand. We could use um, Super Pride or Pride of Ringwood, and then. Uh, and that's just for the bitterness. That's just, just for the that's for about half the bitterness, and then uh, for the second half of the bitterness, we're at the end of the kettle boil. As we start to whirlpool, uh, we're going to add uh, Hirschberger hops. And and what um, are they going to do? Because we, we smelt they were just wonderfully mown lawn grassy. Yeah, grassy, a little bit of floweriness. Uh, your typical noble hop character that comes through, and it's it's really interesting when you look at the. I mean, the, the alpha acids in those hops are only 2%, where in the, the, um, the super alpha, the Dr. Rudy hops are running uh, 12% in uh, alpha acids. So, you know, we had to use a lot more of them, but we're not after the bitterness that much. We're more after the, the, that aroma, that, that, that noble aroma, that grassiness that comes through. Pete, Mitchum, and I were fortunate to bump into you in, at the Great American Beer Festival. Was, there was only 10,000 people there. Like, <laughs> how, how did we ever see each other? <laughs> well, fortunately, we saw each other just before the gates opened. Yeah. So, we, so, so we, we, we got in early. Um, but on, on, on that trip, and I know that you uh, go over every year both to do some hiking in the uh, Colorado mountains, but also uh, because you always come back seeing what is new and interesting and you know what, what the brewers over there are doing. I was very excited to come back and see the number of Pilsners yes. um, and the number of very, very good Pilsners that were being made. Did you try a lot of yeah. those? Yeah, oh, there's some, some, some beautiful Pilsners. And, and 
besides the Pilsners, which is just a more seriously hopped lager, there were some, a lot of craft lagers out there that had some, some really nice characters to them. Uh, I don't know if you tried the Upslope craft lager. I didn't. And, and that's uh, out of Colorado and a couple other ones there, but some, some beautiful Pilsners. And both the German style, they've got four different styles now, that the categories. they got the, the American style, international style, Bohemian style, and German. So it's, it's just amazing, the different styles of, of Pilsners, all uh, fairly richly hopped. You know, you're talking 25 to 40 bitterness units. Which, which is interesting because when you first made the Han uh, premium lager, you couldn't call it any type of Pilsner, and now there, there are all of these subcategories of Pilsner. Uh, yeah, it's just, just amazing where that, that category has grown. And I think, uh, I think we both agree that... Uh, Americans, I mean, when you look at the number of entries still, the biggest entries are still in the, the India Pale Ales and the, the fuzzy, fruity, cloudy uh, <laughs> IPAs that they have and the Pale Ales. But I think they're starting to get over that Pale Ale uh, uh, fantasy. I mean, just like in Australia, I mean, everything's a Pale Ale. Uh, in fact, the original Pale Ale now, people can't remember that, but, you know, that was uh, the, the Cooper's Pale Ale. That was when that was in 1995, I think it started out. The original pale ale, yes, yeah. so, and, and I think before that it had been Cooper's dinner ale and hadn't quite fired as much, okay. um, or there was a variation of it that was because uh, otherwise, I mean, that's the green label and the, and the red label was their their high test, a five point eight percent, but they quickly realized there was a need for a, an interesting tasting four point five alcohol beer, and that that was original pale ales. Now we've had that was original Australian style pale ale, and now we have so many. American style pale ales, uh, confusing the the category uh, in Australia, but uh, it, it's it's wonderful to have those. I mean, we continue. I, th- I think I still think we think we make the best uh, Australian style pale ale with our um, our Kosciuszko pale ale and our 150 Lashes pale ale. Which, of course, I'm. Uh, 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 I was going <laughs> to say you you might have a dog in that hunt. Yeah, um, <laughs> but there, there are some very good uh, pale ales. But I there. think what confused everyone at the time is that. Uh, with little creatures, I mean, their their pale ale was very distinctly one of the first uh, American style pale ales, mm-hmm. and they were using a hop back. They weren't dry hopping, but that's that's pretty close to dry hopping. That's mm. run at the again at the end of the boil as you run off from the kettle. But how do you feel having seen in the U.S. craft lagers and particularly? Uh, pilsners coming back when 30 years ago you were told that was a little bit too challenging when people are talking about pallets are coming back down to pilsners whereas it used to be a step up to a pilsner yeah no i, I think uh, i think they're coming back down to to pilsners and uh, delicately hopped lagers uh i mean they're, they're still we still have good lagers out there you know a lot of people uh, they, they they say oh you big breweries can't make good lagers but i think i mean uh, two is new is 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 fantastic uh i think uh, uh, Carlton Draft is, is highly drinkable. I mean, we've got some really drinkable lagers out there. Uh, people might not consider them craft, but they're, they're still handcrafted in big batches. You're going to have a lot of people listening to this rolling their eyes at those beers that they see craft beer as being a, a reaction against um, being held up as, as, as great beers. And I think, I mean, you just look at the people uh, when you go, go out to have a drink, you know, I mean, we, we sell a lot of Han Super Dry, and that's very delicately hopped, I mean, it, uh, using some Saz hops in order to, to give it a little bit of a spicy character, even though it's low carb. Mm. And people still drink a lot of that. 
But if they're going to only have one or two or three, you know, they'll go to they'll gravitate towards the craft pale ales and the craft lagers. It, but it's, it's funny that you say that because aren't we seeing, as, as part of a beer culture developing, we're seeing people choose flavour over an effect, whereas some of those beers are, um, and, and without any criticism of, of the beers, yeah. but they're targeting the palate that wants to drink eight to ten um, yeah. without flavour getting in the way. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and, it, and I think as a comparison in the U.S., the biggest volume beer in the U.S., is Bud Light, followed by Coors Light, followed uh, by Budweiser, and then Miller Light, and so they're all easy drinking. And when they say light, it's it's carbohydrate modified, carbohydrate mm. reduced. But aren't they declining spectacularly? Yeah, they're, 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 they're declining. shedding volume. They're they're declining, but they still make up over fifty percent of the volume. Mm. But I think someone did an analysis of that, and they discovered that fifty percent of the volume was consumed by something like ten or fifteen percent. Of the of the good old boys sitting in the sports bars and stuff, which again goes back to a time before when there was a culture of drinking, as opposed to a drinking culture it, that we were talking about. Exactly, exactly. So hopefully we'll continue in Australia to develop that drinking culture, and uh, I, I think I mean you've been instrumental in that too with the stuff that you've been doing. I mean the, t- the two of us together haven't turned the turned the world well, around I, I learned in Australia, best, but we're working so. on it. You know? <laughs> So, but it, it must be gratifying to see that you know, 30 years on, palates are starting to discover again or anew um, the, the the beauty of a beer that can have a little bit more flavour than the ultralight beers, yep. um, but the elegance of a beer that maybe doesn't exist at the, the high flavour end of the market. Yeah, no, and I think I still can't understand how the, uh, the, the IPAs have grown so much, you know, and... It used to be, you know, the, in America, the brewers were saying, you know, my IPA is bigger than your IPA, you know, and they're going higher alcohol. They're running 90 bitterness units and, and 7 8% alcohol. That's going down a little bit now, but now they're, they're doing so much dry hopping during fermentation process that gives you that, that fruity uh, cloudiness to the beer. In fact, it actually looks like orange juice. Well, and, and you told me... A, uh, the story, the, I, was, I was talking to some of the brewers, and as a joke, they actually carbonated up some orange juice, added a little bit of tetra hop, so they had a little bit of, of foam character to it, and served it as a beer in the brew pub, just as a joke. And what was the response? Um, very drinkable. <laughs> <laughs> it's so juicy. But, it, but uh, Juicy, yeah. <laughs> but it, it looks like orange juice. It's just amazing. You see pictures, and yeah, I mean, you, you're drinking, but how can you drink something like that, you know? Uh, now, I, well, I, I don't want to turn this into an episode of old men yelling at it clouds. But yeah. <laughs> uh, w- w- would would you ever make a uh, like a, a, a hazy IPA or a NEPA or a juicy uh, NEPA, IPA? Yeah, the uh, New England IPA they call them. Yeah. Um, well, we've done some trials on it, but uh, I, I think uh, it's just hard to justify producing, you know, stuff like that. Uh, uh, you know, because the, the problem, I think, is, is more product stability mm. because it's very hard to make a stable beer. I mean, we like to make a beer that's going to last in a bottle for a month or two. And uh, it's very hard to, to keep that, that, that fresh hop character uh, when you go past the draft beer stage. Well, funnily enough, one of the hop growers that we visited up at Yakima said that that style of beer was one of the best things for small breweries because it meant people had to go to the brewery yes. to, to be trying it. So... That seems to be a great advantage for any brewery that's got a brew pub, and yet we're seeing so many 
brewers wanting to package and distribute widely those same beers, which seems to be arguing against their own case for coming into our brew pub. That's the biggest challenge for small breweries as they grow. Besides the economic side of just getting wholesale margins, not retail margins, is product stability. They make a great beer, you know, one month, and the next month it might not be as good. Uh, it might be better. <laughs> but, uh, you know, that, that's a real challenge, I think, for, for all of our small breweries is to, to upscale like that in a, a profitable and a quality orientation. Have you ever regretted what happened in 92, 93 when interest rates, you know, I, I think the business was put in, the, the, the banks yeah. initially put the beer in, the, the uh, brewery into receivership. Um, and then you were bought by uh, Tui's in, in, in those days. Have, have, have you ever regretted that you couldn't continue as Chuck Hahn owning Hahn? Yeah. No, I, I think it would have been good. I mean, it had been a, a challenge at the time. You know, you know when you have a, uh, a young family and you're trying to look after everyone and not have your house repossessed by the <laughs> bank. <laughs> I mean, there's, there's challenges for that, but I, I can't complain. You know, I've, uh, I've lived a good life, and uh, I'm sure if I'd been 10 years later, I probably could have sold it off for millions and millions of dollars like some of these guys have. But uh, I, I've had a good life and uh, people still um, uh, still talk to me. <laughs> but for somebody, and which is an interesting point, because for somebody who has uh, given so much so generously um, to small breweries, uh, you, you still work for a company that is seen by many um, sometimes of those same breweries as, as, as the, the enemy or their, their biggest competitor to the point that as a founding director of the IBA, you're now no longer welcome in, in, in that club. That must, that, that must have a, an, a, an impact or it must sort of uh, leave a mark. Oh, a little bit, but I, I still have a, a lot of friends that are small brewers and uh, uh, members of the uh, Independent Brewers Association. Um, so I, I still have a lot, of, a lot of good friends out there, yeah. They, they won't kick me out of their pub. <laughs> <laughs> no, but they kicked you out of their club. Yeah. Do you feel that they've made a mistake focusing on independent as opposed to quality? Or you know, do you understand why they're making a, you know, a raising a flag of independence? Well, I think, I mean, they're, they're just following what's happened in the U.S., really, where the, uh, the, the, the smaller brewers have just really tried to rally a lot, you know, and, uh, and have their own craft beer festivals and, and everything else. And I think that... but. Um, it's sort of a little bit of a different climate in Australia than it is is in the in the states on that. Uh, I think maybe they've been too abrupt on that, but um, they're certainly they're making some good inroads. I think, and uh, I think working together uh, also with our Brewers Association, uh, which represents more of the larger brewers and, and ourselves. Uh, together, we've been able to make some major changes in government that actually help out the small brewers, and uh, you know, with an increase in uh, excise rebates. Uh, this type of thing. I think uh, that's really helped the small businesses. But at the same time, a lot of small brewers are going in and seeing banks of line or CUB taps and hearing the sorts of rebates that that are given and the support that they'll never be able to give. Um, And they... Their argument is we would like to compete equally for those taps. You know, do, do they have a point around that? Do you think? Or, well, you know, well what? I think if they were able to offer the same uh, promotional support and uh, marketing support that, that we offer as larger breweries, you know, they're they're certainly able to make inroads there. I mean, first they've got to have a good, consistent product, uh, and you get a lot of of good craft uh, uh, kegs out there in the marketplace now, and so I think the. It's a, it's a real hard decision for the public and which which one to select. Mm. I mean, when you got over you know six hundred breweries now, and and how do you 
how do you try to treat them uh, with respect? I mean, there's still going to be a large market for, for your easy drinking lagers and, uh, and ales uh, from, from the larger brewers, but uh, there's a real niche for the, for the craft brewer to fill. Actually, I, I should ask, back in 88 when you, you launched the Han Premium Lager and, uh, you know, and, and then the Sydney Draft. No, um, Sydney Bitter. Sydney, Sydney, Sydney Bitter. Bitter. Um, how did the, the, the big breweries that were at that stage your competitors, how did they respond? What, how, did, how did they treat you and how did they uh, compete against what you were doing? Well, we, I mean, I, I knew most of the big brewers since I had been a big brewer and uh, I knew a lot of the publicans. That's how we, we were able to get on because I had worked for the large, larger brewers before. But it was just a, uh, a matter of, I mean, we didn't go after them on price. We didn't go after them on saying uh, we're using all natural ingredients, no preservatives, all this, you know. So we knew the, the key points to, to keep away from, I think. And we just made a good quality beer and support it with uh, what we thought was a good craft marketing. And you, you didn't find them coming in and targeting? No. When, when Han picked up a tap, they didn't come in and offer the, uh, the, no. the public and some sweet no, incentives? No, no, we were usually solid because we were we usually there. Uh, we had good relationships with the, with the publicans uh, everywhere. Um, in fact, we had to do the same thing with James Squire, even though because we, we started that as we ran it as a separate company for a number of years. And, well, Doug Donnellan spoke and, about that a couple of weeks yeah, ago. And, and we even had to, we basically were competing with taps with Lion and CUB, and, and we were a distant company of Lion. And that was amazing stuff. And uh, so we were just right out there. Uh, we, but, but Doug worked, uh, worked with me at Han, so he, he took that same philosophy out uh, with, with James Squire uh, as we were getting that established. Was it easier <laughs> or harder to establish the James Squire brand when you had the Lion sales reps carrying you than when you were competing against them? I think the major difference was the the reception for craft beer at the time, because with Hahn we was, there were thirty five breweries. When we started Squires, there were about one hundred and thirty five. So publicans were starting to get used to having more flavorsome ales, and we had the, the first uh, uh, amber ale out there that was interestingly hopped. In fact, it was very similar to um, uh, New Belgium Fat Tire mm. out of Colorado, out of Fort Collins. And uh, so it, it was flavorsome, and I think they were more receptive for that. But no, it was probably just as difficult. <laughs> did you did you come back from uh, a visit to the Great American Beer Festival, having tried Fat Tire Amber Ale, and thinking this could work in, in Australia when you launched the Amber Ale? Well, I knew I wanted to have a, a, an English style Amber Ale, and whether I. Uh, uh, maybe didn't use English hops in it, but this, I wanted to have a distinctive color, a distinctive head on the beer, so that it looked differently in the pub. And Doug probably talked about uh, how we used to go out there and identify who was drinking our beer just by looking at the the color of the beer, and we'd go talk to them. Say, oh, you're drinking James Squire Amber Ale, and uh, that, uh, so it was distinctive. But we we wanted to link back to an English style, as uh, in in respect to James Squire as Australia's first brewer. So, well, Chuck, we've been uh, waiting for poor old Alan's doing all of the work, as often okay. happens when uh, oh, there's, yes. a, there's a media brew involved, uh, that the media turn up, have the photo taken, and then go off while the uh, yes. brewers actually do the hard work. And uh, I think just before we got on, Mike, you said that the uh, German brewers are talking about adding a fifth ingredient to the Reinheitsgebot. Yes, yeah, because... Reinheitsgebot, as we discussed, had, originally had three ingredients. It was was it water, hops, 
and malted barley. Then when they discovered yeast was a central ingredient, they added that as the fourth ingredient. Now they're saying there's actually five ingredients in beer now. And I, I, I thought you were going to tell me that they'd actually watered down the definition. You could now have adjunct sugars, but it's not. <laughs> no, no. It's, it's water, yeast, hops, malted barley, and the brewer. The brewer's got to be out there talking about the beer, pontificating about the beer, convincing people that it's the right, beer to, right fluid to drink. And uh, long may they be called brewers and not uh, logistics process engineers or whatever the uh, current buzzword uh, is. Uh, uh, what, what do they call them? Uh, supply chain specialist. <laughs> Doesn't that really have an appeal? That sounds like a truck driver. In, instead of a brewmaster, you have a supply chain manager. A master supply chain manager. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> well, Chuck, thank you very much. And look, as I said, this brew came out of my desire to, to go back and try the original or as close to the original um, Han Premium Lager as we could. And uh, thank you for indulging my, uh, okay. my, my, my little uh, uh, desire um, and, to do that. And the real key, I think, is we take that out and uh, we're going to have a few extra kegs we're going to try to take it out to we'll have it here at, at the charming squire possibly down at squire's landing uh, a couple of kegs of the original Han premium and i want to taste that and have a special tasting among beer specialists of that along with the james squire original amber ale Absolutely. So, um, be good. and, and uh, I'm about to disappear off to, to Germany, but we're, we're going to, I'll get my people to talk to your people, or you and I will have a chat off, yeah. off mic, and uh, see if we can't even sort of bundle that into a, 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 a live podcast where oh. we can get some of the people that we've uh, even name checked uh, in, in this one and uh, talk about some of those early That'd days. That'd be of excellent. Brewing. And we, it, might, it might be mid January after the silly season, but uh, I hope we get some of the podcast listeners to come. Drink a few beers with us. I'm sure they absolutely will. Okay. Chuck Hahn, always a pleasure to chat. Okay. Thank you. And that was Chuck Hahn. As much as I would like to thank Chuck, I would really like to thank Alan Tilden, the brewer, for the inconvenience of having us take over the brewery during a very busy time for him and all of the scheduling problems that it's bound to have caused. And I'd also like to thank Chuck for indulging my whim in making the beer. We're currently looking at hosting a live Brews News panel to release the beer in Brisbane and potentially in Sydney sometime in January. Stay tuned to the Facebook group and we'll share the details with you once we have them and a little bit more about who will be present at that conversation panel because this is one beer I would genuinely like to share with listeners. Don't forget, if you like what we do at Radio Brews News, you can help us out in a number of ways. You can sponsor the show either by a small monthly contribution or through a one-off donation. You can find details in the show notes. You can review our podcast on iTunes or your favourite podcasting service. Let us know what you think and help others discover the show. Finally, you can tell us directly what you think by sending an email to producer at brewsnews.com.au. All letters received will receive a Brews News bottle opener. And thanks to our good friends at Beer Cartel, the letter of the week will receive a mixed six-pack of Australian craft beer. When Brews News cast and crew are buying online, we buy at Beer Cartel. We love hearing your thoughts on the stories we cover because beer is a conversation.